views expressed on this program are those of the hosts, guests, and callers, and are not necessarily those of this station, its management, or other advertisers. You're listening to Transformation Talk Radio. Hi, welcome. This is Dr. John Martini. This is one of the most amazing and inspiring shows that you can listen into. If you want to be on the edge of your seats, if you want to open up your heart, if you want to expand your mind, and you want to meet incredible people, stay tuned because you're just about to experience a transformative radio show that will change your life. And you're listening to the Dr. Pat Show. is coming up right next. Welcome to the Dr. Pat Show. Talk radio to thrive by. Powerful, inspiring, and coming to you live, bringing you stories of people like you and me, busting through and living life full out. Get ready to dare to wonder what your life would be like if you knew you could not fail. Hello, everybody. You're listening to The Dr. Pat Show, talk radio to thrive by. One of Transformation Radio's good news segments. From virtual reality and cancer care to trends in education, we've got it covered. Thanks so much for listening, and please stay tuned after this break for more of this amazing show. Wow. Hey, everyone. Welcome. Uh, welcome to the Dr. Pat Show. This is Talk Radio to Thrive By. I'm telling you, I got to pinch myself some days because when each of us gets called to do something that we so not thought was in our real house to do for a purpose that's so much greater than us, we get to show up and shine. If you would like to show up and shine on the Dr. Pat Show as a co-host or sponsor, send us an email to inspire at thedrpatshow.com. Are you traveling most of your day? Do you want to take Transformation Talk Radio with you anywhere you go? Well, guess what? There's an app for that. Just go to the App Store on your Apple device or the Google Play Store on your Android and search Transformation Talk Radio. Catch all of our live shows no matter where you are. Thanks for listening. everybody. Guess what? Bringing more bright ideas to cancer care. The Estella's Oncology C3 Prize returns for a second year to inspire and support innovative ideas. Diane Joris, 2016 Grand Prize winner of the Estella's Oncology C3 Prize and co-founder of Oncomfort, a Thai health tech company that uses virtual reality systems to potentially help patients manage the anxiety and pain of cancer care. Yeah, this is actually where it's going, tapping into the most amazing innovation we can to help folks suffering from cancer. Mark Reisenauer, is also joining us here today, a cancer caregiver and senior vice president of oncology at Estellas. Now, here's what I want to say about each of these folks. They are committed, they are dedicated to blending, or shall we say, blurring the lines 
between people that suffer from cancer and the people that are providing the solutions. Whether it is the body, the mind, or the spirit, today's show is to dive deeply into the innovations that we are now discovering about how to better care for what people. That's what this is really about. It's about people. Putting all of the dis-ease aside for a moment, in the end, we are all people. We're people that have souls, that have bodies, that have minds, and that have spirits. And so today, you're going to hear why this C3 prize is so important and what we can expect in innovations around cancer care, the near future, and maybe even the Star Trek far out future. All right, here are our guests, everybody, Diane Joris and Mark Reisenauer. Diane, Mark, thank you so much for joining us here today. You know, here we are. I'm so excited to be talking about you because I got to say, we need more bright ideas to caring for people that are suffering from cancer. Diane, let's start with you, if you don't mind. 2016 grand prize winner, and I, winner, and I was just telling the listeners about this. Um, but most importantly, I want to ask you personally, why is this? so important to you why is it that you know this prize winning this prize and what you all have developed why is this uh important for patients uh, i've been spending the last 20 years wanting to make a big difference in the life of people with cancer i had my dad dying with a bone cancer 20 years ago and this day, the day of his death, I really decided that I wanted to do something that has a huge impact on the cancer patients community. And then I took another professional life. And five years ago, my sister was diagnosed with cancer. And I started working on this project, this uncomfort project. And as you can imagine, when you create a new project and you have a vision, it takes a lot of time and energy to to disseminate your vision and to share it with people. And being part of the C3 Prize and winning the C3 Prize gave us the spotlight on what we were doing and helped us disseminating our activities and our vision across the whole world. We had a lot of interest from medical communities, cancers, uh, support groups, and it really helped us disseminating our solution and helping improve in cancer care uh, worldwide. Yeah, you know, I love... This was a huge opportunity for us. Oh, not only huge, but you know what I love about this? And Mark, we're going to hear from you in a second. Here's what I love about this. You know, I'm the host of the Dr. Pat Show and also the uh, founder slash owner of uh, an entire network that, by the way, I modeled after the Belgian model of media. And one of the things I love about doing what I do now, our 14th year, number one for 10 years, is that I knew in talking with you, that there was something in your heart. I just knew it that was moving you forward because that's the case with us. I 
literally buried two sisters two years ago, one with bone cancer and one with throat cancer. So speaking with you is an enormous honor and congratulations. Thank you for doing what you're doing. Thank you so much. Um, Mark, for you, um, here's the question. I mean, you've got to be completely fired up in looking at something as amazing at honoring people like Diane, right? For the work they're doing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And for us, it, it was amazing to see the ideas that came through last year when we ran the C3 prize for the, for the first time. And I think what was really rewarding for us is that the whole idea behind the program uh, was really twofold. One was Um, As a company, Estellas Oncology, our mission is to enable cancer patients to focus on living. And we know that that means more than just providing drug therapy. We need to do more. It's it's really an obligation. And we were looking for ways to do that. Uh, The second uh, impetus behind the program was my own personal experience uh, as a caregiver, helping my father who recently passed away with head and neck cancer. And as I was helping him through his journey, it, it really became clear that there was a huge unmet need in helping patients and their caregivers navigate our healthcare system and, and help with survivorship and, and help to coordinate their care. And so we thought the contest was probably the best way to get innovative ideas from all kinds of people, whether you're a patient, a caregiver, a physician, an entrepreneur, let's go to the source to get the best solutions. And that was really why this was so uh, rewarding for us is to see the the high quality of Mm -hmm. submissions that we received. I love it. Uh, Diane, I want to ask you this question about what it was like, first of all, for you to uh, submit your application for the, the C3 prize challenge, but also I want to talk with you about what you all have created. I love this idea. Being somebody that was chronically ill for eight years, I love this idea. Uh, and so would you please describe for our listeners what you all have created here? So what we create at OnComfort is a solution that leverages virtual reality technology to deliver to patients a solution to learn how to deal with anxiety, pain, and stress during the cancer journey. Can you imagine that a patient is having an invasive invasive procedure like a breast biopsy? She's sitting in a chair waiting for her biopsy, and she just feels like anxiety is is starting to raise and go up and up and she doesn't know what to do. In this case, we have a solution where the doctor will put a a virtual reality headset on the patient's face and headphones, audio headphones, and the patient would just be immersed in a very soothing environment, guided by a therapist's voice on how to deal with stress, with panic attacks, with anxiety. So not only they learn how to reduce the stress anxiety at this moment, but this is something that they can duplicate afterwards, even without using the technology, thanks to the power of the mind and the brain and the brain ability to reproduce things. So we really impact the patient not only at a certain point of the cancer journey, but we know from testimonials from patients that they can reuse this. And it's really empowering the whole patient's community to learn how to cope 
how to better cope with side effects of medication, with anxiety, with pain, uh, all goes really to empower them. Well, you know, I, you know what I love about what you both are saying and especially about what you've created is that the body is amazing, isn't it? Isn't the body like super amazing that without distractions, the body knows how to heal. And one of the things that I, I refer to as a distraction is exactly what you said. The level of stress, the level of anxiety mm-hmm. gets in the natural way of the body to heal. And isn't what exactly. you have created a way to get the blockages out of the way to help the body heal. Yes, actually it has been proven by research that dealing with anxiety, I mean managing anxiety, for example, before surgery, has physiological and biological impact on patients. And that's the whole beauty of the C3 prize coming from a pharmacological initiative, company initiative, is that this prize is really about non-pharmacological and non-medical approaches to cancer. And as Stella's got it, they understand that healing is not just about the, the body and the molecules. It's really about the whole structure that is around the patient, helping the patient getting better. Yeah. I mean, you know, this is also important to have people understand now, too, that the this C3 prize is so important, but it's also helped you, Diane, right, with, you know, the organization, the company. I want to hear from both of you on this question. How important is it to encourage people to apply for the 2000? And by the way, I've got somebody that I just can't wait to get this information to and what he's created. How important would you say it is for people to get in their application for this? Diane, Mark, who wants to go first? <laughs> Mark, go, go ahead. ahead. Oh, I think, okay, okay, I think it's... Uh, only the, the application process is really simple and when you are at the early stage of your concept of or idea it helps you formalizing where you want to go with your project it's a kind of first small challenge is to to fill in this application which is really made easy by sellers for new entrepreneurs or new concepts new ideas it's not something really heavy it's something that is straightforward to fill in and then you have the ability afterwards to, to, when you're selected as a finalist, I mean, having being an entrepreneur is a long journey and oh. getting your idea out there is really something that's really challenging because there's a lot of good ideas out there. So being the winner or even the finalist of a prize like the C3 prize really puts the spotlight on your company, increases your visibility and gives you huge networking opportunities that will help you growing as an entrepreneur and help you grow your project and make improve the, the clinical care during a cancer journey. You know, yeah, and I, what I would Mark, add Mark, go ahead. Um, yes, okay. thank you, Mark. Sorry. I was gonna just add that <clears throat> to what Diane said is that um don't um, don't be afraid to submit your idea, even if you think it's a, a small uh, idea. I can tell you that when we looked at all the entries last year, there were a, a pretty good number of ideas that were pretty simplistic and straightforward, but yet they were very impactful and nobody had really thought about it before. So um, again, there's no big idea too big or too small to benefit from submitting to the contest. We'd love to see them all. 
Well, and you know, this is really important because in the end, what we're really wanting to do here, by the way, is we're really wanting to help save lives, aren't we? Exactly. Yeah. So uh, give us some information if you could. First of all, let's start with you, Diane. How can people find out more about your uh, invention, your creator of Uncomfort, and give us that information. And then next, Mark, how can we get people uh, to find out on how to apply? So for Uncomfort, it's really easy. Go on uncomfort.com. And you will have the whole information about what we do and our team and the, the, we'll post the projects in the pipeline soon. So we have a huge pipeline of new projects and existing projects. Uh, so everything is there on the website. Yeah, I think we've already requested a demo. So I think we're, we're right on top of that too as well because we really want to make sure that we're getting this in the right hands um, and, and having mm-hmm. people, doctors, et cetera, really work with you on this. And Mark, how about you? Where do we go to, where do we go to sign up here for the, for the C3 prize? Yes, uh, people can go to our website, which is... Uh, c3prize.com. It's the letter C, the number three, prize.com, where you can get information as well as that's where you submit your ideas. And also keep in mind um, the way the contest will run this year, we're going to take the top five finalists and fly them to Mexico City where they will uh, pitch their idea in a Shark Tank format uh, during the UICC uh, World Cancer Leaders Summit. And from the five finalists, we'll select four runners up. Each of them will receive a $12,500 unrestricted grant, as well as a one-year membership to Matter, which is a healthcare incubator. And the grand prize winner wins $50,000, the the, uh, membership to Matter, as well as a business consultation with Robert Hershevik, who is an entrepreneur and star of ABC's television show, Shark Tank. Yes. Uh, wow. Um, I love this. I'm, I mean, uh, one last question. I know you both got to go, um, uh, but here, here's the question. I think this is amazing. I think the world should know more about this. And hats off to you, Mark, for bringing this to the forefront. I want to ask each of you what your personal message is. What would you like to leave our listeners with today, if you would, Diane, then Mark? I would say if you have a dream or or a vision, go for it and don't let anything go into your way. You need to have the will, you have to, to have energy and tenacity. And with this, you can make a huge difference in people's lives. So I think believing in, in yourself, in your vision, in your projects, in your willingness to make the world a better place is key to the world and to patients' life. Yes, I would agree. I think it's, it's about... Um, not only an idea that ultimately you yourself could benefit, but it's the legacy you leave for others that are walking a similar path and, and your ability to help those in the future who are going through the same struggles. Wow. Well, I want to thank you both. Uh, first of all, congratulations for bringing this forward and secondarily for having such a gigantic heart. Thank you both. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much. All right, everyone, we're going to take a short break. We'll be right back.
Miss any shows during the week? Don't worry, we've got you covered. With the free Transformation Talk radio app, you'll have access to all of the past week's shows in the palm of your hand. Tune in to Transformation Talk Radio anywhere you go with our free app for any of your devices. Check out our app in the App Store and Google Play Store today. Welcome to the Dr. Pat Show, talk radio to thrive by. I am so thrilled to be talking to all of you. We have got talk radio for all of us. Are you ready and willing and able to accept all of the abundance you can muster up in your life? Check us out at drpatshow.com, transformationtalkradio.com, transformationradio.fm. Oh, my goodness. Everybody, what to look for this back to season school season. Yeah, Cotton Incorporated releases its lifestyle monitor survey. Joining me here today, Melissa Bastos, Director Market Research in the Corporate Strategy and Program Metrics Department of Cotton Incorporated. Well, here it is. While we all are enjoying the beautiful summer weather, I know we are over here. I know you folks on the East Coast, you've been raining, raining, raining. Uh, Shoppers and retail outlets are getting ready. They're getting fired up for all of the back-to-school shopping that's about to happen. So for more than 20 years, the Cotton Incorporated Lifestyle Monitor Survey has kept its fingers on the pulse of consumer behavior and preferences. The vast quantity of retailers and products can be completely overwhelming for shoppers, parents, children alike. So do you want to know how your back-to-school shopping plans compare with the rest of the country? Today, we're going to talk about what the survey says and, more importantly, what you should be on the aware of and be on the lookout for. Melissa is responsible for the consumer attitudinal and consumption studies, as well as retail assessments conducted in the U.S., China, Latin America, and India, including the Cotton Incorporated Lifestyle Monitor and Retail Monitor Research. So for more than 15 years, Melissa has researched and presented on consumer and retail behavior in over what? 18 countries. So take your pen and paper out. Here we go. If you're like me, you're thinking ahead But how far ahead do we think? Uh, What are the lifestyles? What are the fashion styles? What are the things that we are looking at moving ahead, looking at this back to school season? Now, if you're like me or like my friends or like my friends' friends, uh, you try to think about this in advance. But the point is this. What is going on in this world? What should moms, dads be aware of? And what is it about lifestyle monitor and the survey that is for us uplifting, inspiring, and making us all way more aware? Melissa Bastos is joining us here today. And we're going to be talking about what this lifestyle monitor survey is bringing to the forefront for us today. Cotton Incorporated has released the results. They are in. Let's see how many winners we have. Melissa, great to have you here. Uh, It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. 
Well, let's talk about this for a minute because, you know, we live in a culture, pop culture, subculture, whatever the culture is, um, where we look at and have children, maybe even grandchildren, that, you know, shopping is an event. It used to be a necessity, but now it's an event. So you've just released a survey that's going to give us some insights. So we're excited to hear what the survey says, what the results are, and a little bit about what Lifestyle Monitor Survey is about and why you all do it. Sure, absolutely. Uh, Well, the Lifestyle Monitor, it's Cotton Incorporated's Lifestyle Monitor Survey, and it's an ongoing survey that we started back in 1994. So it's over two decades old. And the purpose of this survey really started as a way for us to understand the end consumer and what um, products were important to them, what was important to them when they were buying clothing mainly, because for cotton, the largest end use for cotton is clothing. And so we wanted to understand what it was that consumers were looking for, how they were using it, and, you know, any information we could have to really have a great outreach in um, what we shared with the end consumers, but also what we share with the industry, brands and retailers, so that we can help them or educate them on what it is the consumers want and need in their, their wardrobes uh, when they're looking for uh, products to buy. So here's the question. So we talked about... Oh, sorry. Okay. Uh, so the, so no, the question, this is kind of an interesting question because I'm looking at everything that you all do, but there's just incredible insights. Somebody made a comment to me the other day saying, boy, I'm telling you, it looks like the economy is picking up. I'm going to have to increase my uh, back to school budget. Now, is that true or not? Well, I can say if we look at some just overall projections that are available out right now, uh, we can see that they are expecting an increase of about 4%. It's one of the projections I was reading recently (laughs) of uh, back to school uh, overall spending. So that would include everything that um, consumers are shopping for. And our service out their clothing purchases. And what we see is that there's just a slight uptick. It's a little more mm-hmm. flat if we see what they plan to spend on their clothing overall. So, But we do think that overall this will be a positive uh, back-to-school season for the brands and retailers and for the consumers out there shopping. Yeah, here's a question because I have some friends that say, we got to get it done. We got to get it done. We got to go get the shopping done. We got to just get it done early. Let's get ready. I have some other friends that say, nope, I'm going to wait till after school because I'm going to get the sales. So what what are some of the patterns? Do people shop early? Do they wait till after? How, How does this play out? Well, there's a little bit of a mix, but the majority of consumers, about 68%, say they like to have everything wrapped up before (laughs) school starts. So they want to have all the clothes in the closet washed, you know, ready to go uh, before their children hit school for the first day. But like you said, there's about a third of consumers that they're like, I'm going to hold back a little bit on some of the purchases because I feel like maybe a better deal is going to come my way after the first um, day of school. So maybe I'll get a, a little bit cheaper price on a few things out there. So we have a little bit of mix of both, but most try to try to get what they need before the first day of school. You know, let me ask you this question. And and uh, and it, were there, what were some of the surprises for you? You know, I know that this is part of what, you know, you get completely immersed in uh, year after year. But are there any surprises, anything you said, oh, huh, that's interesting? Well, I can say there are a few things that uh, are we typically see, like what is it exactly – Plan to buy the top item is clothing. About 91% plan to buy that. Shoes, supplies like notebooks and backpacks, 
Um, those are really the top items they're going to shop for, and we tend to see that consistently. And then for clothing, it being the top item, we want to know what types of clothing they're buying. Shirts and tops will top that list, pants, socks, jeans, shorts. We have seen a significant increase in the pants. Uh, those saying that they plan to buy pants, about 81%, and that's up from um, about 69% last year. So we saw a significant increase there. And also wow. shorts. I mean, a lot of kids are going back to school while it's still warm out, going back in August. So um, they need some shorts to keep them cool as well. Uh, but I think one thing that I like to look at, yes, I love to look at all the numbers, but <laughs> one thing I think is always interesting to see what percent of parents say that their child either makes the decision solely about what uh, apparel they're going to buy, about 38% of parents say um, they make the decision, the parent makes the decision, about 11% say the child makes the decision, and about 52% say it's a joint decision between the parent and the child. So I think that's always interesting because I know my children, they may not know exactly what they want, but they know what they don't want, and <laughs> I will buy things and then they won't wear them. I feel like I've wasted my money. So I want them to be part of that process. So that's always yeah. an interesting question. It, it is an interesting question. And, you know, does it change? I don't know if you have this information, but does the answer to that question change based on age? Well, it definitely does. The older they're getting, the more likely they're going to be coming into, you know, or be likely to be part of that decision. And we know from those uh, children that are looking at their clothing, they do have ideas about what they want from their friends. What are they wearing? Uh, what are they, um, their school policies are going to be important for the parents because they want to make sure they're, they're, have their children dressed appropriately for whatever um, short length or sleeve length they need for their tops. Um, but for the children, they also are looking to things like social media, looking to celebrities and things like that for their ideas of what they're looking for. And they also want to know what's comfortable for them. Mm -hmm. Like they have already ideas of what is most comfortable for them when they're in gym class or math class. They want to be uh, feeling comfortable at all times. So yeah. we know that, you know, that children do have an impact. Well, that brings me to the next point. And, you know, I grew up in a family where cotton was king and queen. And for a period of time, you know, it seemed like we were going through stages where cotton wasn't out in the forefront. But I don't think that is true anymore. See, I think what we've done is sort of relaxed, you know, making sure that every wrinkle is out of everything. And we're really opting in for comfort, aren't we? And that to me, that's like, you know, cotton leading the way. I don't know. What do you think? What did you find? Well, I certainly would agree with that, and I think parents agree with that as well. So regardless of what clothing item they do plan to buy for them or items, mm -hmm. um, what we do know is that more than 8 out of 10 parents tell us that they want their children to be dressed in cotton because we do know that they think it's the most comfortable fiber. So we just asked them to tell us, comparing all these different fibers, you know, which uh, ones do you find to be most comfortable or softest or easiest to care for? And we know that cotton tops the list for all of these uh, in comparison to other fibers like polyester and rayon. So um, for them, that means comfort for themselves and their children. Mm -hmm. um, uh, there was a number in the survey which I glommed onto because we also do surveys about media. And what we discovered in our media surveys is that moms 35 years and over 
are so completely attached to online internet, smartphones. They are the masters when it comes to technology and getting things done. So I was looking at the number of, of, of parents here that buy online versus store. And while the number I think did go up, I think I was expecting a higher number. What, what is your take on that? Well, what I see is that a lot of people actually prefer to shop in the physical store. And some Mm -hmm. of that can just be the whole experience and making sure they find everything that they need. If they don't remember certain things, they'll see it. But also having their children try things on, that's going to be important as well to make sure it fits. But online did increase some. It's uh, at 27%. Shopping in store is about 73%. But regardless if people are buying online or buying in the physical store, they are still browsing online and as a form of education and research. So they're looking for the deals. They're looking for the best products. They're looking for the fashions and the things that they need to get. And they're trying to use it to streamline their shopping experience. So they kind of already know what they want when they're walking in the store. And then they're picking out those extra things they didn't think about when they're in the store. Well, I I know that... It it is important and I I agree with you completely about the online browsing, you know, to at least get a sense, you know, what the heck is my 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 what the heck is my son or daughter really into this year? I don't know if you have this information, but a friend of mine said to me, you know what, I go shopping for my son and it's a no brainer. Uh, but when it comes to my daughter, it's a different experience. Are we looking at different demographics between, you know, boys and girls or not so much anymore? Um, well, definitely it can, but it it, it changes. And, and, you know, sometimes what we've just our research overall and not just specific to back to school shopping mm-hmm. is that more and more men are taking an interest in uh, clothes shopping and fashion and doing this all themselves. We've seen an increase in that over several years now. So even we'll see that for the younger men that they have more of an interest yeah. in clothing and making sure they're in style with their friends and what's popular at, at school. Yeah. Uh, so it's, yeah, I think it, it was different a long time ago where there wasn't necessarily an, an interest. There was an interest from boys or men and now we've just we've really seen a change in that oh yeah no kidding i you know i have a friend of mine whose son it just absolutely demands to wear a tie so i mean this is a young child this is like nine years old right Right. nine ten wants to wear a tie so her shopping now is totally different so here's the fun experience right uh he's nine uh, or 10, she's 10 or 11. Now she wants to wear ties too. I mean, this is really kind of looking at styles, changes, and a new level, I think, of openness to styles, don't you think? Oh, I absolutely do. And I think that's definitely it. And I have twin 10 uh, year olds, a boy and a girl. <laughs> and I have to tell you that my son, yeah, I say they're my social experiment, right? My son is much more interested in his, his the way he looks and having everything neat and orderly and together. And my daughter, I'll buy her. I'm like, oh, what a pretty dress. Pretty dress. This is great. She's like, I'm not wearing that. No. <laughs> She's like, no. <laughs> So it's it's just different, and I think it's it's great that they are so interested in it, and they have so much more access to it just to see it, even if they're looking online, even children looking online with their parents to kind of see what are the products that are going to fit them best. I and know. again, 
is they're checking labels, looking for the cotton too. <laughs> exactly, they are because they know a scratchy is going to be out. How can people find out more? How can they get a copy of the uh, whole survey, if you don't mind? And thank you so much, Melissa, for joining us today. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Absolutely. If you want more about the numbers, you can go to lifestylemonitor.cottoninc.com. And if you just want to know more about cotton, destination all cotton things, you can go to thefabricofourlives.com. And that's where you can get thing, information about care tips, how to care for the clothing, DIY projects, fashion advice. There's even a section called Shop Cotton where it links you directly to brands and retailers that have cotton products. So hopefully to make that process a little bit easier for parents. Yeah. So this has been great. Thank you so much. No, you're. this is really wonderful. I wish we had a little bit more time because I wanted to really get into, you know, my experience with a 10-year-old shaving the right side of her head, beautiful blonde hair, oh, yeah. leaving the rest of it down and coloring the tips rainbow colors. That could be a whole show, right? <laughs> That that absolutely could. I know. And I have a, t like I said, I have a 10 year old myself. They probably could get along well. <laughs> oh, there we go. Thank you so much, Melissa. Thank you. Well, we're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. Listen while you work. Streaming live on any device. Tune in to the Transformation Radio Network. Visit transformationradio.fm. Did you know that all of the shows on the Transformation Radio Network are available as podcasts to stream or download? Really? Check us out. Go to transformationradio.fm. We have business shows, spiritual shows, energy healing shows, and pretty much everything in between. Something for everyone guaranteed to inspire, educate, and transform. We are transforming the world one listener at a time. Take us with you on that morning commute. Download your favorite podcast from the Transformation Radio Network. Just visit transformationradio.fm. Hey, everybody. I am so thrilled to be talking with all of you about Behind the Numbers, the State of Diversity in K-12 Education. New Schools provides comprehensive data on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Consider it DEI. And this is in the education sector. Joining me here today is Francis Masano and Siomara Padamisi. And what are they talking about? Well, they're managing part one is managing partner, Francis, at New Schools Venture Fund. And Siamara uh, is a partner with Bellwether Education Partners. Both of them have been in the business of looking at diverse leader strategies and how to bring to the forefront new level of awareness and information. You know, Francis has an MBA from Harvard School and a BA from Harvard College, first-generation college graduate, kind of like me there, uh, as well as somebody that is out in the world looking at 
how to create a strategy for innovation and organizational development, which honors everyone. CMR is a partner with Bellwether and more importantly, spent 15 years experience in education reform and human capital work, better known as people. And here we are with both of them today, bringing to the forefront what needs to be done. If you're looking at how these women are in this world and how they're taking something to the forefront, if you look at their background and look at what it means to be teaching in the South Bronx, like Ziamara, certainly familiar with that, or more importantly, how to be out there as spokespeople for this messaging, both of these individuals have a top A game. Today, get ready for some new information. Get ready for, wow, what is a question I should be asking my schools, myself, and the leadership that run the schools my children are in? Thank you both for joining me here today. The State of Diversity in K-12 Education. I am so thrilled you're doing this and are coming to the forefront. Can you give me a little background and our listeners' background? First of all, why is doing this research? Why is this important? And what are you hoping to bring forth in terms of message messaging? Francis, you want to go first? Sure, I'd be happy to. And Pat, thanks for having us on today. We're very excited to be here speaking with yeah, you. Yeah, me too. So the, re- so the reason why, great. So the reason why we decided to focus on this is one, our country is getting more diverse every single day and so are our schools. And so really digging into this topic seemed incredibly important. In addition, we know that you can't go a day without conversations about diversity, equity, and inclusion coming to the forefront. We're seeing you know, conversations on this, whether it's media and the technology world, et cetera. This is on everyone's mind. And so we thought both thinking about the changing demographics, thinking about how this is a conversation, we thought it was really important to study this so that we can move from just talking about the issue to really thinking about action that we might take and steps that we might advance, particularly in the education sector. Well, and, you know, let's talk about this. Is, um, is diversity on the minds of schools and on the minds, and on the minds of students? Uh, uh, CMR, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. So we went out to the field of education and we asked organizations that are working on education, all different types, schools, uh, districts, charter networks, nonprofits, um, ed tech, foundations, um, about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, we had 200 edu- uh, education organizations participate in our our study and tell us about their policies and practices and demographics. We also had 5,000 respondents, individual respondents, uh, staff members from within those organizations tell us about the experience that they're having every single day in relation to diversity, equity, and inclusion in their organization. Um, and so we feel we feel like uh, um, the response is a great response, and we feel strong about uh, the um, inc- the the participation from those different organizations. And one thing I'd like to I'd like to just pull out is um, yeah. of those that participated in the study, a hundred percent noted that they were committed to diversity, equity, and inclusion, and making progress here. So there's a ton of passion out there. So what's the demographic, meaning, you know, what is the audience that you uh, went out and and, and asked uh, to provide data from? Because that's a big number, you know, 100%. I, I worked in diversity uh, management uh, as an executive director for years, and 100% is, like, stunning, actually. 
Yeah. So what is yeah. the demographic? Yeah. So, so Siamata just mentioned um, mm-hmm. all the kinds of organizations that we asked mm-hmm. to respond. And so we yeah. did get 200 education organizations, whether it's schools, nonprofits, mm-hmm. funders, et cetera, to, to engage. And so while that 100% number is really strong and powerful, I think it's also important to put it into context because we actually reached out to 2,000 organizations. Um, and so only 10% of the people we reached out to responded. So while yeah. 100% of the respondents are committed, we only had 10% of organizations actually tell us about what they're doing. And so a fun fact for you is that there was like an additional 200 education organizations that opened up the survey and tried to take it. But once we started asking them questions about what they're doing today, our, our, our hypothesis is that they stopped because they're actually not focused on this in, in a deep way. So on one hand, we're encouraged by the commitment. On the other hand, we see that there's a lot more work that needs to be done. Yeah. And, you know, that's why I asked the question, because, you know, my experience is exactly like you just indicated. Um, The people that are working on it are going to take the survey, you know, the organizations that are not working on it or not. But, you know, my question to you is, given that the survey has been taken, what are some of the aha kinds of results? What are some of the things that the survey will tell us uh, of what we're doing really, really well? and what we could uh, probably use a B12 shot doing better. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. So there were some fascinating findings. Um, One of them is that while our schools are becoming more diverse every day in terms of the student population, education leadership is not keeping pace. So the ratio of Black and Latino leaders versus students remains unbalanced, and that gap actually increases as you move up in seniority within education organizations. You know, we talked a little bit about the passion of those who did respond to the survey and and the commitment, uh, but leaders in education are struggling to translate that passion to outcomes, and and often we found they just don't know where to start. Um, They're trying lots of different practices, 47, in fact, um, and uh, there's tons of room for improvement in terms of knowing which of those practices are most helpful and will most enable leaders to to move forward, uh, you know, more aggressively. Um, but organizations that are making progress here are seeing it pay off. Um, so that's a really promising finding that we're excited about. Those organizations that are more diverse, equitable, and inclusive, so their staff are experiencing a sense of belonging and a sense of fairness, um, and they have made progress on their on demographics, we actually find that those staff are more likely to stay. They're more likely to recommend their organization to others. They're more satisfied. And within those organizations, people are seeing links between their diversity, equity, and inclusion work and stronger educational outcomes for students. Yeah. How is this affecting, if I might ask, you know, look, I know one thing from being in a diversity organization and being there, I'm sorry, I'm going to date myself a little bit, being there when there were quotas, Meaning, you know what? We need to make progress. Now, you can say what you want to say about them, but I'll tell you the bottom line to that back when that was happening was those jobs would not have been filled in a diverse way. They just wouldn't. And so the question that I that I would like to ask both of you is what kinds of things would you like to see organizations do better to open up the field to understand and appreciate people are, and what I mean by that is we threw everything upside down and we threw a diversity fair, which was a on-site 
fair where different people from different cultures brought food. I mean, it was despite all of the failures that brought people together. So can I ask you, what are some of the innovative things that you think work? Yeah, I think number one, we need to make sure that we're going to new uh, pools uh, uh, to find the talent that we need for education organizations. So how do we expand the networks where we typically are doing our recruiting so that we can get a much diverse, a much more diverse group of, 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 of employees? So I think that's one major area where there could be focus. I think another is how do we actually develop and support leaders differently once we have them in our organization? A lot of times what you find is people are doing a really great job of getting diversity into into the organization, but are not making sure that they're keeping those those diverse folks, you know, there. And you have a revolving door effect. So by really yeah. focusing on practices that are that are focused on inclusion and equity, basically the, the the like the plain way of saying that is creating an environment that seems fair, where people think, regardless of who they are, they have a chance to advance, a mm-hmm. chance to get development that their opinions matter um, um, and they see they see a pathway for themselves, like that is the way for us to really create environments where that diversity is sticky. And a lot of that comes down to organizational leaders prioritizing this yeah, and incorporating yeah. it into all the work that they're doing as opposed to making this a side initiative, something something you kind of do as you're saying like, okay, let's, let's, let's have a fun staff activity. It has to be more robust and more integrated than that. Yeah. You know, before we run out of time here, because I know these interviews are short and I could just keep going. Um, Would you please tell folks, first of all, how they can find out more about what you're doing, but also how they can take a look at the survey results? Because I thought the survey results and the reports are really interesting in themselves. How can people do that? Absolutely. Well, people can go to the website, unrealizedimpact.org. Um, And when they go to unrealizedimpact.org, they can download the executive summary. They can download the full report with all of our findings and analysis of those findings. They can even explore the data. They can go in and play with the data themselves. They can sign up to get more information, uh, to take the surveys among their own organizations, and they can learn more about Promise 54, which is a new organization which we're launching in order to help enable progress in the field. Yeah, no kidding, because it does take an organization to do it. Um, Can I have uh, one last question for each of you? If there was something that you saw in the data, just in the data, and you looked at it and said, oh boy, we got to do a little work over on that one, what would that be for each of you? Yeah, so for me, and this is Francis, the one data point that I was most struck by was the fact that 24% 24% of all survey respondents said that they experienced discrimination in the workplace. Yeah. And then when you saw for, for Black and Latino um, staff members specifically, um, yeah. they reported that, 50% of them reported that they had that experience. And so mm-hmm. when you're thinking about people who are working every single day on behalf of our students, the fact that in their organization, they are experiencing discrimination that is a major issue that we need to focus on. And so I hope that we can all think about as, as leaders in education, but then, you know, in, in organizations overall, how can we minimize that? Because it's important for us to really be able to harness the full, the full benefits that every, 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 every staff member and discrimination is really holding us back. Mm. Yeah, the, the finding um, that really stuck out for me the most was this idea that diversity is not sufficient. 
um, that you've got to move, we, organizations have got to move beyond uh, diversifying their demographics into building inclusive environments and equitable practices um, within those organizations. We found that organizations, even those that make dramatic improvements just to diversity alone without making improvements to, to inclusion Equity, we don't see the bar move in terms of uh, retention impact, uh, satisfaction impact, uh, recruitment impact. So diversity alone is not enough. Yeah, I mean, there is so much here we can learn from. In the end, isn't the, the takeaway from this how we act and behave as leaders, let's just say leaders, how we affects ultimately the people we're in front of, children. And, and the messaging in that, I mean, isn't that really why we want to look at this in some way? Absolutely. I mean, a lot of these organizations in the education space are working toward equity, and um, we've got to help enable these organizations to put their passion and commitment and intention uh, into, into action and outcomes uh, so that they can really model the equity and justice within their organization that they're working for in society. Wow. Well, yeah, I we wanna... see a strong connection sure. between what, you know, you know, staff members and education organizations and those improved outcomes from students, whether students feeling like they have better role models, there are higher expectations for them. Um, they feel better understood. They feel like they're building stronger relationships. So all of this adds up and ladders up to just better results for students, which to your point, Pat, is the whole reason why we do this work. And, you know, I want to say this last thing, and I hope and I, I, I hope for you both. First of all, thank you. Thank you so much for this. But I hope there is something that can bring these other organizations to the forefront. And here's why. If out of this population, 100% of the people took this survey and wanted to take it, and even with these results, we have some of the percentages, especially around being on the receiving end of discrimination in the 20 and 30% mark, can we imagine what that might be in the organizations that didn't participate? That's so I right. hope mm -hmm. you can reach them. You know what I'm saying here? I hope you can we figure do. out a way. And, and you better take that message far and wide, Pat. We're with you. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm just saying, you know, it, it's it's not sometimes what we know because you did a great job with what we know. It's in what we are not willing to get at. It is the silence sometimes that is so deafening, don't you think? Right. The real yeah. gaps, the real gaps. And we just want to reiterate that if you go to unrealizedimpact.org, not only can you get the results from this subset of the education sector, but you can also sign up to take this survey, your own organization now today, um, and get your own results and get started on that work. Yeah, I got to tell you, the one thing for me that I saw that I was a little shocked, given the demographic and the population that said yes to doing this, is the one where it says our organization's DEI initiatives are effective. So I would have thought, like in that little deal right there, I would have wanted to see like 80, 90 percent, because remember, these are people that self-reported that said, yeah, we want to do it. And I looked at that, and what was the highest percent? Didn't even get to 60. I don't know. Did That's you right. all it's, pick up on that? <laughs> yeah, I think we found that pretty shocking too. It's this idea <laughs> that it's this idea that um, you know organizations want to make progress; they're intending to make progress, um, but they don't know how. They don't know where to start, and so they're doing lots of different strategies, and many of them are perceived as uh, ineffective. 
Yeah, and only 49% of organizations have any kind of policy in place, you know, to begin with. And so, again, we're seeing all of these gaps. There's a disconnect between aspiration and action. And our whole focus is how do we close that gap as well so we can get much more progress on on, on this topic. Well, I can give you the answer to that. (laughs) What's that? It's called perspiration. You got to work at it. Yes, indeed. That's <laughs> Thank right. You, so you need a strong sure. commitment. <laughs> you gotta, yeah, I'm telling you this stuff. But, you know, you've created a level of awareness. Without awareness, people don't have a target. Thank you so much for all that you all are doing. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for thank the you, time. Thank you, Pat. We appreciate you bet. it. And much more, everybody, here. We're going to take a short break. Unrealizedimpact.org. Check it out. Do a little comparison. And by the way, Why don't you go ask your organizations what they're doing? We'll be right back. 